Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders Episode 7, The Rise of Saladin. In the last episode we heard about how Saladin took control of Egypt from the Fatimid Caliphate which he abolished in 1171. However, he was still nominally the vassal of Nur ad-Din, the Zengid ruler of Syria and Iraq, but he refused to obey Nur ad-Din who in 1174 was starting to prepare an invasion of Egypt to bring Saladin to heel when unexpectedly he suddenly died. At almost exactly the same time, the very active and astute crusader king of Jerusalem called Amalric also died. So suddenly a power vacuum was created in the Middle East and in this episode we'll hear how Saladin saw that he had a golden opportunity to establish his own great empire and one that could at last confront and defeat the crusaders. As before, I'll read extracts from my bridge version of Sir Stephen Rund brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. To Saladin, watching anxiously in Cairo, King Amalric's death came as a sign of God's favour. Shia intrigues against him had come to a head in April when a plot to kill him was betrayed to him. He struck at once and crucified the ringleaders, but he could not be sure that there were not others ready to conspire should a Christian army come to their aid, and in the meantime Nur ad-Din's heritage might pass firmly into other hands. Now, with Amalric dead, there was no danger of a crusader invasion by land. A Sicilian fleet was, it is true, in the offing, for King William II of Sicily had neither heard of the collapse of the Shia conspiracy nor of the death of Amalric. On the 25th of July 1174, the Sicilians, with 284 ships to convey their men, their animals and their provisions under Tancred, Count of Lecce, appeared suddenly before Alexandria in Egypt, but they found themselves deprived of the support on which they had counted, and they had already refused to countenance any help from the Byzantine Emperor, for William had quarrelled with the Emperor Manuel, who had offered him the hand of his daughter Maria, and then had withdrawn the offer, and Anyhow, he wished to show that he could do better than the Byzantines had done in their siege of Damietta in 1169. On their failure to surprise the city, and on Saladin's approach with an army, the Sicilians took to their ships again and sailed away on the 1st of August. This left Saladin free to march into Syria. The Syrians were alarmed by this, and the governor of Damascus, Ibn al-Mukadam, was frightened and appealed to the Franks for help. When there was nothing forthcoming from them, he next appealed to Saif ad-Din of Mosul to come to his rescue, but Saif ad-Din preferred to consolidate his gains in the Jazeera. However, the people of Damascus then insisted on their governor acknowledging Saladin's authority. Saladin set out at once with 700 picked horsemen. He rode swiftly through Jordan, where the Franks made no attempt to stop him, and he arrived at Damascus on the 26th of November. He was received there with joy by the people of the city. He spent the night at his father's old house. Next morning, the governor, Ibn al-Mukadam, opened the citadel gates to him. He installed his brother Toketin as governor, and after delighting the people of Damascus with generous gifts, he proceeded to march northward. 
Meanwhile, with the Crusaders, King Amalric's death had left the Franks powerless to intervene. The only remaining prince of the royal house was the 13-year-old leper Baldwin. His sister, Sibylla, a year older, was still unmarried. His stepmother, Queen Maria Comnena, had only given birth to daughters, of whom one had died and the other, Isabella, was aged two. The barons accepted Baldwin as their king without any problem. Four days days after his father's death, he was crowned by the patriarch. No regent was appointed. The Seneschal Miles of Plancy, the late king's closest friend and lord in his wife's right of the great fief of Outre-Jourdain, carried on the government. But Miles was unpopular, particularly among the locally born aristocracy with whose support Count Raymond of Tripoli claimed the regency. Next to the king's sisters, Raymond was his closest relative on the royal side of the family. His mother, Hodierna of Jerusalem, had been Amalric's aunt. Though Bohemond of Antioch was descended from Hodierna's older sister Alice, he was a generation further away from the crown. Moreover, he lived far away, whereas Raymond had recently married the second great heiress in the kingdom, Esquiva of Bures. Raymond's supporters insisted on his rights being heard before the high court. Miles prevaricated for as long as he could, but had to yield. Late in the autumn, Raymond was installed as regent. A few weeks later, Miles, who had taken his fall from power with an ill grace, was assassinated one dark night in the streets of Acre. Raymond was now aged 34, a tall, thin man, dark-haired and dark-skinned, his face dominated by a large nose, in character cold and self-controlled and a little ungenerous. There was nothing in him of the enthusiastic chivalry of the early crusaders. During his long years in captivity, he had read deeply, he had learnt Arabic, and he had studied the ways of the Muslims. He saw the problems of the crusader states from a local standpoint. He was interested in their survival, not in their role as the spearhead of aggressive Christendom. He was able and ably supported by his friends, but he was only regent and he had enemies. His regency began a division within the kingdom. There had been factions before, especially in the days of Queen Melisande, but they'd been short-lived. The crown had kept control. Now two definite factions arose, the one composed of the native barons and the hospitallers following the leadership of Count Raymond, seeking an understanding with their foreign neighbours and unwilling to embark on risky adventures, the other composed of newcomers from the West and the Templars. This party was aggressive and militantly Christian, and it found its leaders in 1175 when at last Reynaldo Chatillon was released from his Muslim prison together with Jocelyn of Edessa, a count without a county, whom fate had turned into an adventurer. Personal animosities were even stronger than differences in policy. Most of the nobles now were cousins of each other, and family quarrels are always the most bitter. Raymond's first duty as regent was to curb the growth of Saladin's power. The Franks had been unable to prevent the union of Damascus with Cairo, but at least Aleppo was still separate. As soon as reinforcements came from Egypt, Saladin had marched to Aleppo from Damascus. On the 9th of December 1174, he entered Homs and left troops to invest the castle which held out against him. He passed on through Hama to Aleppo. When Gemushta 
Kin, the governor of Aleppo, closed the gates in his face, he began a regular siege of the city on the 30th of December. The citizens were half inclined to surrender to him, but Gumushtakin sent for help from the Franks. A few days later, Count Raymond and a Frankish army appeared before Homs and began to attack the city walls. This had the desired effect. Saladin raised the siege of Aleppo and came hurrying south. Raymond did not stay to meet him. For the next month, Saladin was held up by the siege of the castle of Homs. By April, he was master of all Syria as far north as Hama, but Aleppo was still independent. In gratitude to the Franks, Gumushtakin released Reynald of Châtillon and Jocelyn of Courtenay and all the other Christian prisoners languishing in the dungeons of Aleppo. Saladin's successes roused Nur ad-Din's nephew, Saif ad-Din of Mosul, who sent his brother, Is ad-Din, with a large army into Syria to join Gumushtakin. Saladin, hoping perhaps to cause trouble between Aleppo and Mosul, offered to cede to Gumushtakin, Hama and Homs. The offer was rejected, but the Allied army was caught in a ravine among the hills of North Hama and cut to pieces by Saladin's soldiers. But Saladin did not feel strong enough to follow up his victory. A truce was arranged which allowed Saladin to occupy a few towns north of Hama, but otherwise left things as they were. Saladin now tried to assert his authority by taking the title of King of Egypt and Syria, and he struck coins in his own name alone. The Caliph at Baghdad graciously approved and sent royal robes that reached him at Hama in May. But Nur ad-Din's family were determined to confront Saladin. In March 1176, Saif ad-Din of Mosul himself crossed the Euphrates with a large army and joined with Gumushtakin's troops outside Aleppo. Saladin, whose army had been reinforced again from Egypt, went up to meet him. An eclipse of the sun on the 11th of April alarmed his men as they crossed the Orontes near Hama, and they were caught by surprise ten days later by Saif Adin as they were watering their horses, but Saif Adin hesitated to attack at once. Next morning, when Saif Adin brought all his forces up to attack Saladin's camp on the Mound of the Sultan, some 20 miles south of Aleppo, it was too late. Their first onrush almost succeeded, but Saladin countercharged at the head of his reserves and broke the enemy's lines. By evening, he was master of the field. The treasure that Saif Adin had left in his camp on fleeing was all given by Saladin to reward his own men. The prisoners that were taken were well treated and soon sent back to their homes. His generosity and clemency made an excellent impression. But Aleppo still refused to open its gates to Saladin, so he attacked and captured the fortresses between the city and the Euphrates, Biza and Membai, and then laid siege to Azaz, the great fortress that commanded the road to the north. There, Saladin nearly perished at the hands of the assassins, who Gumushtakin had appealed to for help against Saladin. The assassins saw Saladin as a threat and had vowed to kill him. One of them entered his tent when he was resting, and it was only the cap of mail that he wore under his turban that saved his life. Meanwhile, the fortress of Azaz capitulated on the 21st of June. On the 24th of June, Saladin appeared again before Aleppo, but now he agreed to come to terms, and he made a truce with Gumushtakin, leaving Aleppo independent. 
Saladin could now turn to deal with the assassins and the crusaders. He entered the Nazari mountains to lay siege to Masaif, the chief assassin stronghold. Sheikh Sinan was away, and as he hurried home, Saladin's soldiers could have captured him had not some mysterious power restrained them. There was magic about. Saladin himself was troubled by terrible dreams. One night he woke suddenly to find on his bed some hot cakes of a type that only the assassins baked, and with them a poisoned dagger, and a piece of paper on which a threatening verse was written. Saladin believed that the old man of the mountains had himself been in the tent. His nerves gave way. He sent a messenger to Sinan, asking to be forgiven for his sins, and promising in return for a safe conduct, henceforward to leave the assassins undisturbed. The old man of the mountains agreed to pardon Saladin, and a treaty between them was made. With the Franks, however, no such treaty could be made. There had been a truce in 1175 when Saladin, in order to be able to deal with Saif Adin, had released the Christian prisoners in his possession. But the next year, the Franks broke the truce. While Saladin was besieging Aleppo, Raymond of Tripoli invaded the Bukaya from the Bukaya, while the royal army under Humphrey of Turon and the 15-year-old king came up from the south. Raymond seems to have suffered a slight defeat at the hands of Ibn al-Mukadam, now governor of Baalbek, but the Christians made a junction and severely defeated Saladin's brother and the militia of Damascus. They retired again as soon as Saladin approached from the north. He didn't follow after them. He was anxious to return to Egypt. Leaving Turan Shah in command of a strong army in Syria, he once more slipped through Utrejordain and arrived at Cairo at the end of September. For a year there was a respite from fighting, for which both sides were thankful. While Saladin reorganised Egypt and rebuilt and refortified Cairo, the government at Jerusalem faced its main internal problem. In 1177, King Baldwin came of age at 16, and Raymond gave up the regency, but the king's leprosy was growing worse. He surely could not live for many years. To provide for the succession, the princess Sibylla must be married. In 11 1175, probably at the suggestion of King Louis VII of France, Baldwin had invited William Longsword, eldest son of the Marquis of Montferrat, to come to Palestine and accept Sibylla's hands. It was a good choice. William was well connected. His father was the richest prince in northern Italy. He was cousin both of the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa and of King Louis. He himself, though no longer young, was gallant and handsome enough to please the princess. He landed at Sidon in October 1175. On his marriage to Sibylla, a few days later, he was given the county of Ascalon and Jaffa and generally accepted as heir to the throne. But the hopes based on his energy and his high connections were in vain. Early in 1177, he fell ill of malaria. His illness dragged on for some months and in June he died. His widow gave birth to a son in the late summer, an heir to the kingdom, but one that made a regency inevitable. The king's envoys scoured Europe once more to find a second husband for the princess. But even though the young king, Baldwin, was a leper, he was a brave and courageous man who was still capable of leading his army into battle, and it was now that he would prove his worth. For in November 1177, Saladin marched up the coast into Palestine. The Templars summoned all the available knights of the order to defend Gaza, but the Egyptian army marched straight on to Ascalon. The old constable, Humphrey of Turon, was seriously ill, and the king had only 
only recently risen from a sickbed due to malaria. With the troops that he could muster, 500 knights in all, and with the Bishop of Bethlehem bearing the true cross, Baldwin hurried to Ascalon and entered the fortress just before Saladin came up. He had summoned every man of arms in the kingdom to join him there, but the first levies were intercepted by Saladin and taken prisoner. Leaving a small force to contain the king in Ascalon, Saladin marched on towards Jerusalem itself. For once, Saladin was overconfident. There was no enemy left between him and the Christian capital, so he loosened the discipline of his troops and allowed them to wander round the countryside pillaging. With the courage of despair, the young King Baldwin managed to send a message to the Templars telling them to abandon Gaza and to join him. When they came near, he broke out of Ascalon and rode with all his men up the coast to Ebelin and then swung inland. On the 25th of November, the Egyptian army was crossing a ravine near the castle of Mongizar, a few miles southeast of Ramla, when and suddenly the crusader knights fell on it coming from the north. It was a complete surprise. Some of Saladin's troops were absent foraging and he had no time to regroup the remainder. Many of them fled before the first shock. Saladin himself was only saved by the, his personal Mameluke guard. The regiments that held their ground were almost annihilated. Among the Christians, the king was in the forefront. The bravery of the Ibelin brothers, Baldwin and Balian, and of Raymond's stepsons, Hugh and William of Galilee, helped on the victory, and St George himself was said to be seen fighting by their side. Within a few hours, the Egyptian army was in full flight homewards, abandoning all the booty and the prisoners that it had taken. The soldiers even threw away their weapons in order to flee more quickly. Saladin managed to restore some measure of order, but the crossing of the Sinai Desert was painful, with Bedouin harassing the almost defenceless fugitives. From the Egyptian frontier, Saladin sent messengers on camels to Cairo to assure any would-be rebels that he was still alive, and his return to Cairo was announced by pigeon post all over Egypt. But his prestige had suffered terribly. It had been a great crusader victory, and it had saved the kingdom for the moment, but it had not in the long run changed the situation. The resources of Egypt were limitless, whereas the Crusaders were still short of men. Had it been possible for King Baldwin to pursue the enemy into Egypt, or to make a swift attack on Damascus, he might have crushed Saladin's power, but without help from outside, he could not risk his own small army on an offensive. Instead, he decided to build strong fortifications along the Damascene frontier where the loss of Banyas had upset the defensive system of the kingdom. While Humphrey of Turon fortified the hill of Hunin on the road from Banyas to Turon, the king set about building a castle on the upper Jordan between Lake Hula and the Sea of Galilee to command the ford by which Jacob had wrestled with the angel, a ford known also as the Ford of Sorrows. The land on either side was inhabited by Muslim peasants and herdsmen, some owing allegiance to Damascus, some to the Christians. They passed to and fro freely across the frontier, which was marked only by a great oak tree, and the Franks had undertaken never 
to fortify the crossing. Baldwin had wished to abide by the treaty and built a castle elsewhere, but the Templars overruled him. The local Muslims complained of the breach of faith to Saladin, who offered Baldwin first 60,000 and then 100,000 gold pieces to give up the work. On the king's refusal, he vowed to take action himself. After his disaster at Mongizar, Saladin remained for several months in Egypt. In the late spring of 1178, he returned to Syria, and there he vowed to take his revenge on the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the tide continued to turn against both the Crusaders and also Byzantium as it faced another great defeat at the hands of the Turks at the Battle of Myriokephalon. <laughs>